Wait, that's the end music, isn't it? Hello, my name's Justin the Clue. And I'm Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And that's all, folks. Nah, I'm just kidding. We're just starting. And we're going to be talking about the Looney Tunes. Or the Merry Melodies. Both, really. So, cartoons. Are they important in your life, Will? Were they important when you were a kid? Did you toss them away and go, these are for children? Uh, of course they're important in my life. Aren't they important in everyone's life? Well, Cartoons? some people <laughs> at a certain age decide like, oh, these are infantile, make dumb jokes. Like, they have no value to me anymore. No, I remember when I was maybe uh, nine or ten, I rented a video from Blockbuster called Cartoons for Big Kids, which was <laughs> which was not a porn. It was, uh, yeah. uh, you beat me to it. Yeah, um, it was actually a documentary hosted by a friend of the show, Leonard Malton, mm. uh, in which he sort of showed in their entirety a lot of somewhat racy cartoons, uh, Red Hot Riding Hood. And... <laughs> He's like, make sure your mom is out of the room for this one, kids. Yeah. Molten after dark. <laughs> yeah, he he was a very Al Goldstein like <laughs> presence. Just sweaty under lights with a big gold chain. I give this one ninety five on the Peter meter. <laughs> but no, he, he showed the the big snooze, the great piggy bank robbery, and the uh, despite the somewhat lascivious sounding title, it was very much about how cartoons were made for you know an audience of uh, you know a general theater audience, like adults, pretty yeah. much, like. Yeah. When you hear the animators who worked on the golden years of Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes, they always say that they never tried to target it for children because it was adults that were paying the money and they had to sit through it in the first place. And they were the ones who would spend money on merchandise and stuff like that. So there's no reason to like lower the intelligence level of these cartoons. And Chuck Jones, the most famous of the Looney Tunes directors, uh, famously said, these cartoons were never made for children, nor were they made for adults. They were made Made for me. So for me, cartoons were such a big part of my life because the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show would play seemingly endlessly in an age before you could pick exactly what you wanted to see. Like yeah. this was all that was playing on channel three most of the time. That's right. And it wasn't necessarily a show that you like made appointment viewing. For. No, because it was just always on. And it wasn't always just the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show either. There was the Bugs and Daffy show. There was the uh, Roadrunner show. Mm-hmm. There were just tons Ooh, of- The Roadrunner show is the poor man's Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> yeah, that, they usually had the more bottom of the barrel uh, <laughs> Lo- Looney Tunes stuff. But there were just like, yeah, it was just uh, time filler stuff that was on all the time. And I think there are some Looney Tunes cartoons we've probably seen 20 times. Uh, probably like 100 times. Yeah. For some reason, uh, they wanted to show like what's Opera Doc over and over and over again, mm-hmm. which is really funny because when you look at it, it's the one that probably has the least jokes in it, mm. especially for a kid, because that short, like, let's just talk about it before we get into the history of Looney Tunes, because I think that when I think of, like, Bugs Bunny cartoons, that's the one that pops into my mind first, because it is so iconic. Be very quiet. <laughs> I'm hunting rabbits. Kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. And I'm it, very excited that you can do all your um, Looney Tune voices on this episode. And, you know, it's almost a cliche to say that lots of people learned opera from the Looney Tunes cartoons. Any classical music that I know or opera is from the Looney Tunes. Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let yep. me clean your crop. Daintily. <laughs> uh, and like... What's Opera Doc is almost a compression of Wagner's ring opera, or at least like chunks of them in six minutes, right. because that's what all these cartoons were. They were like six to seven minutes. And 
when you say that, it seems insane. Like, wait, they pack that much stuff They're into so that? so dance. Like, time? And, like, it wasn't just Chuck Jones either. What's Up Opera Doc was Chuck Jones. There were so many other animators as well. And I saw an interview with Chuck Jones where he said that theater owners and exhibitors demanded at least six minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Leon Schlesinger, the man who owned uh, the the Looney Tunes brand for the early days of its existence, said, "Okay, six minutes. Um, that's all I'm paying for." Then, yeah, so they had just six. They minutes. had six minutes and no other leeway. So when you go back into the history of like Warner Brothers Animation, which Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes fell under. Um, what you discover is not like people showing up and going, I have this idea for a character named Bugs Bunny. Let's just make a bunch of cartoons. Mm-hmm. What you get is a bunch of animators, very good ones, kind of toiling away for almost a decade until they hit that like magic blend that we consider like the classic cartoons. Yeah, the uh, Looney Tunes brand started in 1930. It was uh, started by a duo called Rudolph Ising and Hugh Harmon, who had previously worked for Disney. And they created a character, kind of a pilot cartoon called Bosco the Talk Inc. Kid, which impressed Leon Schlesinger, who was a money man at Warner Brothers. And if you look at those early cartoons with Bosco... He looks like a racist caricature of a little black boy. And when any of the animators would be interviewed, they'd be like, oh, we just pictured him as an ink blot. Like, that's the way we imagine the character. But as time went by, he became a very, like, clear racist caricature. Well, there's enough plausible deniability in how he's designed, yes. right? Because he's also a Mickey Mouse ripoff. Mm-hmm. He's like the way Mickey Mouse looks without the ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mickey Mouse is black as well. I actually watched the first Bosco cartoon this week. Wait, it was it the test reel where it's like live action? and like Bosco comes out of an inkwell and yeah. like, ah, what you doing? And all, and he just talks like a black yes, kid. Yes, exactly. I think his voice becomes higher as the cartoons go on. Mm-hmm. But Bosco um, was the first Looney Tunes superstar and he appeared in a series of shorts that were okay. We should clarify that like at this point in animation, everything was dominated by Disney. So when like animated shorts started to get made and you had people like uh, Max Fleischer doing stuff, it was the idea that like, Everything should be moving. If you look at like Betty Boop cartoons, like every object has eyes and is like bouncing around oftentimes to music. And what Disney brought in with his animation studio was let's do this realistically. Mm-hmm. Like we, specifically with our feature films, we want them to be on this like real, no like out there stuff to add a lot of verisimilitude to it. And there's a beautiful uh, lushness to mm-hmm. the Disney cartoons. Uh- so... People like oh, the Warner Brothers department at that point was trying to imitate that and was also trying to make cute cartoons. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no imagination in these early Bosco shorts. They even made like cartoons with a character named Foxy, who was just a Mickey Mouse ripoff. He even had the ears and everything. So Rudolph Ising and Hugh Harmon left uh, in 1933 to start the MGM cartoon division. They took Bosco with them for a while. <laughs> uh, we'll see you on the top of our money pile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, MGM, you know, Road Bosco to riches. Everyone, everyone today still has their Bosco backpacks. Uh, Bosco did reappear in an episode of Tiny Toons. That's right. Yeah. And he had a completely different design than he did in the uh, early animated cartoons. Uh, after Ising and Harmon left, Warner Brothers, their only cartoon star was a character called Buddy, who was just a white Bosco and <laughs> yeah. had even less personality. But from the period of 33 to 36, they started hiring the most important animators, the most important directors that they would use, mm-hmm. including Fred 
Tex Avery. Yep. Fritz uh, Freeling. Bob Clampett. And a young Chuck Jones. Mm. Who at that time, like, his obsession was making cute cartoons. He wasn't even going for laughs. Mm-hmm. All his characters were very well-rounded, and he was just trying to imitate that Disney style. But many of the other directors were less interested in cuteness. People like Clampett and Avery in particular were pushing more towards this uh, outrageous style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't happen overnight. And it was also rooted in this parodying of the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the evolution of like the Disney style, because I think that one of the big important parts that a lot of people forget when they think of stuff like Bugs Bunny is how in the now it was Mm. and how it was reflecting like pop culture as it was happening. Yeah, one of the things that Looney Tunes was originally, there was Looney Tunes and there was Merry Melodies. Mm -hmm. Looney Tunes was thought of by Warner Brothers as a way to market some of the songs that they owned. Hence the title. So there would be uh, I Love to Sing, uh, you know, shit like that. You know, gradually, uh, I think the Looney Tunes and the Merry Melodies eventually became interchangeable. And they were also split because one of them was in color, Looney Tunes, and Merry Melodies was in black and white. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's possibly the other way around. Yeah, I don't know at this point. Because (laughs) the only way me and Will know the difference is just the title when it comes up in the like Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show syndication Mm -hmm. version. And a lot of those cartoons were originally black and white and were colored, and we just didn't know. Such as Porky and Wacky Land. That's right, which was a favorite of mine as a kid. That was a weird one where not only was it brought into color, it was reanimated by someone else, Fritz Freeling in this case. They they just traced over it. Yeah, if you look at them side by side, it's like everything is the same, except it's not as imaginative as the Bob Clampett version. Because like Bob Clampett, like, I always think of Tex Avery as the guy that, like, brought kind of craziness back into cartoons. Because, like, Tex Avery, like, it's the, you know, the dog with, like, the, the mouse that falls oh, out yeah, and the dro- eyes bug out. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the wolf. The wolf, yeah. Ooh. And there's also Droopy Dog that he created. Um, well, one of the important directors in sort of defining the Warner Brothers style in the 30s was Frank Tashlin, mm-hmm. who later became, uh, you know, a very good uh, maker of live action films. And because of that, maybe he was interested in the filmic possibilities of cartoons. Uh, His cartoons had very rapid fire editing, innovative camera angles, much more visual imagination than some of his colleagues. Yeah, because Fritz Freeling at the Warner Brothers lot, he was like the granddaddy when it came to like directors. Like the animation that he did was very like joke, 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 Mm -hmm. joke. There was kind of over the top stuff, but didn't really like bend it too much. Mm -hmm. And the thing about Frank Tashlin is that while his cartoons aren't really the funniest mostly because like the cartoons he was making were right on the cusp of like the change Mm -hmm. at warner brothers before Mm -hmm. he went to go do live action it's that they were the most cinematic if you look at something like um the bugs bunny cartoon that he did i don't remember what it's called the unruly hair was it yeah the unruly hair which is a bugs and elmer fudd one not only is it a constant straightforward flow there's no blackout sketches which means gag 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 he also uses like close-ups and he uses reverse shots and just crazy stuff like that that like no other animator was doing there's a uh, a great frank tashlin cartoon that i watched this week called porky pig's feet where donald duck is talking to a kind of a pudgy manager of a building and he like puts his face closer and closer to it and closer and closer and then his face like the fat guy's face starts to engulf yeah uh, <laughs> daffy duck's face and like I think that Frank Tashlin, like, he always comes up when people start to talk about, like, Warner Brothers uh, directors. And it's a little bit unfortunate that, like, he didn't get a chance to, like, use the formula as well as it was. Mm. And that he was still kind of figuring it out. Most of his cartoons came out during World War II when they were doing stuff like 
like Daffy Duck, like buy more war bonds. <laughs> but he also introduced a lot of the things that would be pushed further by other directors. Frank Cashner started to introduce a lot of that fourth wall breaking stuff. He mm-hmm. started to introduce moments in the cartoons where characters would be conscious of the fact they were in cartoons or conscious of their status as Warner Brothers characters. Yeah. Uh, And this was kind of grabbed by everybody else and just extended into what it would become. And we should get back to Bob Clampett because like you said last week that he's one of your favorites, right? If not the favorite. I think so. And, you know, Chuck Jones, I think on points wins. Yes. He's got more masterpieces than... I'm just gonna say any filmmaker ever. Like <laughs> I, I would completely it, it, agree with it's, you. It's stunning when you look at what you made. That said, Bob Clampett's worldview, mm-hmm. his style, uh, speaks to me very strongly. So Bob Clampett, when I think of his animation style, it's the idea that anything can bend and kind of like move in every direction. He's an animator that his characters are in constant motion. Mm-hmm. The thing about Chuck Jones is often characters moving quickly into comedic poses, mm-hmm. and that's where the laugh goes. And Bob Clampett. Sometimes it's a little bit tougher to laugh at them because they're always moving. Like his Elmer Fudd, for example, mm-hmm. is a very fat Elmer Fudd. Yes, and, with a big head. And his body is always just moving in so many so mm. many ways. Or there's an amazing Bob Clampett cartoon, The Old Grey Hair, where Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny travel to the future, to the year 2000. Yeah, because Elmer Fudd wants to finally kill Bugs Bunny. <laughs> and they're so old. Yes. And, and like, it's a cliche thing to say, but you can put any frame on a gallery wall. The... the contortions these characters faces make as old characters even though you probably couldn't because a lot of the frames that they would use the transparencies for animation they would wipe off and redraw on it to like make more cartoons uh we forgot to mention that all these guys were in a building that's most famously known as termite terrace Mm -hmm. because supposedly it had termites (laughs) and it was just a you know a bungalow Mm -hmm. where they worked and you can sort of tell a Chuck Jones cartoon, you can tell a Bob Clampett cartoon, but it was a very collaborative atmosphere too. Yeah, and you could tell a Fritz Freeling cartoon or or a Frank Tashlin one. Like they all have their particular mm. quirks, but at the same time, they're all working in the same world. And like the characters that we know and love, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it took a while to evolve to the point that you know them. Like I remember as a kid, I would see like a Bugs Bunny cartoon and be like, wait, Bugs Bunny looks weird. Yeah. Like he looks bigger, like he's more wobbly than he would become. Yeah. So, and, and it's hard to attribute authorship of Bugs Bunny to any one mm-hmm. filmmaker. A version of Bugs Bunny appeared in a 1938 cartoon called Porky's Hair Hunt. That's right. And then he appeared, and then another sort of rabbit-like character appeared in Presto Changeo. And, you know, a, a, a couple of different versions until... Tex Avery's A Wild Hair, which is the first official one. The Elmer Fudd chasing Bugs Bunny cartoon, the what's up, Doc, Mm -hmm. eating the carrot stuff. But even then, the character would evolve after that. And I think other characters, too, like Daffy Duck begins as a very kooky. Yeah, uh, like crazy, um, like Porky's trying to hunt him. And he's like, and then. Yeah, and then Chuck Jones turned him into the Daffy Duck we know today, this bitter rival to Bugs Bunny. Who thinks he's amazing, but is really lame. Mm -hmm. And, like, Chuck Jones is the one that, I mean, you hear him talk because he's the one who lasted the longest out of all these guys. He can very clearly describe why these characters work. Like, the idea Mm -hmm. that once they figured out that Bugs Bunny was a character that would often, in his best shorts, fight against a bully and would be unflappable in a way, and that's what was 
impressive about Mm -hmm. him and is one of the reasons that like during world war ii bugs bunny was super popular Mm -hmm. everybody loved him Mm -hmm. because he was this unflappable kind of hero character yeah and he became only that even more so Mm -hmm. as chuck jones became increasingly important you know if tex avery is very interested in gags gag 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 each one wilder than the last no limit to how crazy the gag can get uh chuck jones is very interested in the characters yeah and like what motivates them Mm -hmm. like the way that he talks about the roadrunner and the coyote and the fact that like this is all based on the idea that that it's a kind of arrogance of what he's trying to do because like eating that roadrunner it won't taste good like there's almost no meat on that (laughs) but it's the futility of trying to do this over and over and over again and just not learning any lesson and i believe chuck jones actually had like a list of 10 rules Mm -hmm. of the the roadrunner and like you can even see that in the kind of permutations that the coyote would take like uh there's a bugs bunny and coyote cartoon where the coyote talks well wiley coyote super genius yeah and he's this arrogant guy Mm. which adds even more to like you wanting to see him get injured Mm. While the Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons is more about like the sympathy that you're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening to this dumb animal. Or there was the, um, I, was it Sam? It was like the sheepdog in Coyote oh, cartoons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which has one of the best gags of Looney Tunes ever. The idea that like they beat each other up and then they go and clock out at the end of the day. Yeah. And there's this one that ends with both of them arm in arm, the sheepdog and the coyote. And he's like, ah, isn't this a great life? As they walk <laughs> off into the sunset. I think that's just such a useful metaphor. Yeah, you know, is. For like politics. Everything. Yeah. The idea of like, oh, good morning, Sam. Ah, good morning, Ralph. And like, it's, all, it's all kind of a show. Yeah, that's all that it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Tex Avery is an extremely important director because he crystallized Bugs Bunny. But I think Tex Avery did his best work for MGM after he left. Mm-hmm. He did uh, uh, Red Hot Riding Hood and uh, the Northwest Town Police and uh, King all Size our Canary. <laughs> great, great fucking cartoons. But that nobody talks about because they weren't in syndication. Uh, like, And they don't have recognizable characters exactly. in them, really, except that, for Droopy. That's a problem with Frank Cashlin as well is that mm. he would often work with like one-off characters mm. or one-off stories. I mean, if I can just put one idea out into the ether for this episode, like seek out the Tex Avery MGM cartoons. He really is one of the best filmmakers who ever lived, I mm-hmm. want to say. But maybe we should talk a little bit more about, but if you want to get a sense of like, you know, who Bob Clampett and Chuck Jones were as animators, since I'm just going to say now they're probably the two most important uh, Looney Tunes animators. And Fritz Freeling, who won the most Oscars out of any of them. That's right. I mean, Fritz Freeling is a little harder to uh, get an auteurist read on. Well, he was just a company man. That's what he was. Like, he did what he did very well, Mm -hmm. and he had no compunctions about kind of retracing cartoons Mm -hmm. or just doing gag, gag, gag. Like, some of the funniest Bugs Bunny cartoons that I remember are Fritz Freeling ones. Like, the one where Bugs Bunny has to jump off the diving board, and Yosemite Sam wants to make him do it. That's a Fritz Freeling cartoon. And it's a masterpiece. High high diving hair. Yeah, Fritz Freeling did a ton of great ones. Uh, Nighty Night Bugs. which also uh, won an Academy Award. The only one that starred Bugs Bunny that won an Academy Award, which is crazy. Because it's not really that great. No, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the ones that actually won awards, it's like Sylvester and Tweety ones. Like, mm-hmm. not my favorites. They're amusing. But it's like, ah, bring back Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck. So Bob Clampett made Porky and Wacky Land. Yes. The Great Piggy Bank Robbery. Corny Concerto. The Old Grey Hair. The Big Snooze. Book Review. Cole Black and the Seven Dwarves. Yeah, which me and Will <laughs> watch today. It's still unreleased on any DVD. And if you uh, watch it, you'll go, oh, yes, I understand. It is incredibly racist. It's quite racist. And anybody that tries to defend it like, well, but it has a ton of great gags. 
well, all of those gags are based in racism, so <laughs> uh, very problematic. But Chuck Jones, you know, I said he's made more masterpieces than maybe any other filmmaker. Uh, get a load of this. Duck Amok, mm-hmm. What's Opera Doc, The Rabbit of Seville, Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. Can we talk about Duck Amok for a second? Because I think that's my favorite Looney Tunes cartoon ever. Yeah. And I think that when you look at it, it's easy to go like, oh, well, it's because it's meta and it can do all this crazy stuff. But what's interesting about it is that they did it with Bugs Bunny afterwards. Yeah, and it doesn't work as well because it, it's very dependent on like Daffy Duck. Yes. As this, like frustr- the frustrated, uh, you know, underappreciated uh, star yeah. in his eyes. Like, yeah, you know, like what? he tries his best, like like that thing where he's like dashing through the snow. Oh, oh. Yeah, and the background yeah, changes. changes. And he's like, all right, listen, guys. One of the character details I love in Duck Amok is this idea that he's this showbiz professional. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'm a star. doesn't matter the incompetence I'm working with. Put me in any situation. I'll entertain. There's that one part when when essentially Daffy decides to stop working with the animator. He says, folks, I'm, I've am i decided to entertain you in my inimitable fashion. <laughs> and he they starts start, doing a soft shoe. <laughs> he just starts dancing. <laughs> I think probably my favorite moment of it is not even the funniest, but it's just the execution of it. It's the one where he's trying to hold up the like top of the frame that keeps falling on him. Yeah. And it's not just falling like hard and it's falling like droopy, like it was liquid. Yeah. And he tries to like prop it up with a stick and then it just kind of falls on him and he rips it up. He's like, yeah. <gasps> and then he like catches his breath. Like that's real anger that you're seeing from this character. But it's funny in the way that it's executed because of who he is. The the timing of the cartoons is unbelievable. I mean, I, I think uh, I read a Chuck Jones quote where he said, the difference between humor and non-humor can be one frame. Yes. That's how high the stakes are. And for people that don't know how cartoons are made, like, it's not a storyboard is done and then you give it to the animators and go, go for it. The animator actually has to time out every major pose down to the frame. Mm -hmm. And so nothing is wasted. No extra drawings are made. So, like, the Roadrunner cartoons, Chuck Jones would know, like, all right, he needs to hold there for this many frames and then he has to fall for this many frames for it to be funny so in operation rabbit which is that wily coyote bugs bunny cartoon Mm -hmm. there's a part where um uh wily coyote is in a little shack and he's putting poison in carrots and then unbeknownst to him bugs bunny takes a tractor and moves his shack onto a train track and there's a window (laughs) open behind him and you know wily coyote is like looking down at his little experiment he's like oh i'm such a genius i'm such a genius and the train is coming behind him then he turns around he looks out there's a pause as the train is approaching them. And then he like closes the curtain. <laughs> yes. The, the closing of the curtain, like it's so impeccably timed. <laughs> well, if you look at something like the hunting trilogy, which it came to define Daffy Ducks and Elmer Fudd, the one where it's the rabbit season, duck season. Pronoun like, trouble. <laughs> yeah. Those are the simplest version of like cartoons that you can get because it's just two characters that are just essentially yelling at each other. But just the animation is so funny and the timing of it and the way that like Daffy Duck in those three cartoons, the punchline is always he gets blasted by a shotgun and his beat goes in some weird way that he then has to turn back to normal. And so funny. And Jones knows how to like hold hold yeah. it for just long enough for Daffy Duck to just like yeah, sit there for a few seconds pondering his predicament. <laughs> How did I get here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, another great Chuck Jones cartoon, One Froggy Evening. Yes. You know, I think a case could be made the best cartoon of all time. Uh, probably Maybe. not only one of the most memorable and the most thematically 
ironically rich, but also like hilarious. Oh, yeah. And one that became not just the mascot for the CW network, yeah. but also something that you can use every day. Like, oh, it's one of those like, um, what was it? Michigan J Frog situations. <laughs> yeah. You know, a wonderful like little morality tale. And it, it, it's hilarious. I mean, one of the things that make makes it work is as this man who's trying to, you know, get rich off the singing frog, as the man as his life continues to unravel and it gets worse for him, the frog just keeps singing. Yes. And the juxtaposition between like the misery of his situation and the just mindless, you know, energy of the frog. Or like Hello my baby, hello my darling. Like there's also so much richness to like the the mise en scène of it. Yes. Uh, like, you know, this this guy is just a lowly construction worker, and then you see him you know, at his apartment and it's this shitty apartment and he's got some money like stashed in a box under his bed. Well, like something that Looney Tunes brought to the animated field that people don't talk about too much is also like the backgrounds by Maurice Noble mm-hmm. that were like super stylized. And mm-hmm. that like before that, if you look at like the pre-World War II ones, the backgrounds are very well animated and very detailed. And that when you start to remove things and you make them like these kind of just abstract mm-hmm. ideas, most clearly defined like the Roadrunner cartoons mm-hmm. or what's opera doc the humor just comes out more mm-hmm. from that mm-hmm. because that level of unreality kind of focuses just the gag mm-hmm. you know another thing that Chuck Jones brought to uh, the Bugs Bunny character or maybe underlined or developed in the Bugs Bunny character was his his kind of moral code mm-hmm. so I think it was a Chuck Jones cartoon that introduced the line of course you know this means war stolen from our favorites the Marx Brothers ha well, uh, and I think, in fact, Groucho Marx is an influence on Bugs Bunny. Because um, the carrot being like a cigar that Groucho would carry. But, you know, one of my favorite Chuck Jones cartoons, The Long-Haired Hair, which is the one where he's fighting that opera singer. Oh, that was so good. Because it, there's the scene at the beginning where the opera singer is at his home. And he's trying to rehearse, uh, but he keeps like Bugs Bunny's outside playing his banjo. <laughs> yeah. And then the opera singer. Yep. The opera singer is a jerk to him. And then he keeps beating up Bugs Bunny. And then finally, finally, after three incidents, Bugs goes, of course, you know, this means war. And then he uh, unleashes this incredibly sadistic and complicated <laughs> yeah. plot of revenge. I think the best Bugs Bunny cartoons are the ones where he gets beat up a little bit at the beginning and then comes back and does these crazy impossible things like Bully for Bugs oh, where yeah. he fights the um, bull in the bullfighting ring. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites of all time. I remember when I got the Golden Collection on DVD these amazing box sets that Warner Brothers put out mm-hmm. and like the climax of that one uh, <laughs> came up where the bull <laughs> rushes back into the bull ring and it, he like lands on Greece, which he slides on and then flies into the air where um, paper stuck to him, which lights a match, which as he's flying through the air, he sees the match light dynamite and goes across and ahead of him. That's so funny. That, <laughs> like That is another one of my favorite gags where where uh, Bugs comes up to the bull and he, he, he goes, oh, uh, excuse me. And he puts this bungee cord on his horns <laughs> and then he goes off into the distance and you see in the distance this tiny from the bull's eye view, tiny Bugs Bunny as he like puts a big boulder in the bungee cord and then you see the boulder come towards the camera because you get these characters who are bad (laughs) and you want to see them get their comeuppance and at the same time chuck jones would like hold there in that uh, coyote way for a second before the pain hits them and the laughter comes from the coyote holding up like a little sign that says like i don't know this is gonna hurt or something like that like like a big boulder is about to fall on the coyote and then he like brings out a little umbrella. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the uh, the things we try to do in life to protect us, even though that the situation that we're in is our fault anyway. <laughs> but like, 
Bugs Bunny, um, it's it's a very complicated balance that the character has to have because he can't seek out conflict. No, he can't. He can't mm-hmm. go and kind of maliciously torture some people, even yeah. though that he did in the early ones mm-hmm. where he's just kind of a troublemaker yeah. in the way that Daffy Duck originally was. There's a Bob Clampett one called, I think, uh, The Wacky Wabbit, where he fucks with uh, Elmer and then he, he looks at the camera and says, I do stuff like this to him throughout the picture. <laughs> But later on, he has to be somebody who, like, doesn't seek it out, has to be provoked. Uh, but then once he's provoked, he's allowed to be completely sadistic and he's allowed to enjoy the suffering of <laughs> yes. his opponent. But he often does it stone-faced as well. Yeah. Like, he'll reveal the gag, like, pull the thing away and then the bull will hit, like, an anvil or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, that amazing Yosemite Sam on the diving board one again. Mm-hmm. Like, that one is all Yosemite Sam's doing. Like, Bugs Bunny <laughs> just wants it to end and Yosemite is like, no, get back up there. I want to see you dive. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, good stuff. Um, I, there are some, maybe we should just mention a few other good collaborators. Uh, musical director Carl Stalling. Yeah, that when he left, people said that like the cartoons took a noticeable dip mm-hmm. because not only is the animation, but it's also the music and the way that it's incorporated in these like little six minute bits that work so well. Because there's music throughout them, and not only do they add to the picture, they don't distract from mm-hmm. it. Like you're never watching and go, "Ah, oh, that music's not well placed." It's just always perfect. There are also writers, Warren Foster and Michael Maltese in particular, and the voice artists, obviously Mel Blanc, mm-hmm. the first name I ever knew associated with these cartoons. Re- uh, yeah, because when you hear that one guy does all mm-hmm. the voices, not true. Not true. <laughs> that you go, that's crazy. Like, Mel Blanc could do a lot of voices, but if you see something like we talk about on our Patreon episode, Strange Brew, like, he, you can recognize his voice when he does it as well. That's right. He's not exactly the man of a thousand voices, because there's also Arthur Q. Bryant, the voice of Elmer Fudd. The only voice that he did. And uh, June Foray, mm-hmm. who was, uh, you know, Witch Hazel and uh, the, the granny character for those Sylvester and Tweety cartoons. And they often weren't credited in the uh, cartoons that they did. It's too bad. Yeah, but, you know, anybody who's interested in them, all the credits are up on the internet now. Mm. Uh, like anything that lasts, like, decades there was an expiration date to the theatrical release looney tunes cartoons and also i think you know those those old timers there's a period when they were at their peak Mm -hmm. and then they were not at their peak anymore yeah i mean we watched this thing that tex avery did in the 60s so tex avery had that great run at mgm and then apparently there came a point where he was just like i don't find this funny anymore Mm -hmm. it's like he just he just sort of lost it and then he was contracted to do some bugs bunny cartoons for kool-aid in the 60s yes not very good no they're fine there's uh not many animation frames in them yeah like they look look like like... hanna barbara a lot of uh the writers went to go work for Hanna-Barbera hmm. after they left uh, Warner Brothers. I guess I'm not surprised by that. They have a bit of a, you know... Yeah, well, because, like, what happens when something becomes popular is that the money men try to figure out how can we do this more cheaply mm-hmm. and will they still enjoy it? Mm-hmm. And when you do something like the Flintstones, which is very kind of poorly animated and the kids still eat it up, it's like, why the hell would we spend all mm-hmm. this money doing theatrically released shorts? Yeah, and, you know, the last couple of years of Looney Tunes, I'm not that well-versed in the in the end of the Looney Tunes. I know that one of the last characters they tried to introduce was a Bunny and Claude, which were a Bonnie and Clyde uh, parody with squirrels. <laughs> and it's like, we, we steal acorns or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a vague memory of see, seeing it on television. Yeah. Those I, cute two little chipmunks. Probably. Oh, yeah. yeah th- those, I think, are two other characters. Oh, okay. So more chipmunk characters. Th- those kind of like, um, um, I want, you know, let's face it, gay. Gay. <laughs> yeah. gay chip- I didn't like those. <laughs> really? I don't know. They were a little lame. <laughs> they, I mean, I mean, 
they were one of those characters that I, I do enjoy this idea of like not being aware of what's going on around them. Cause mm-hmm. there was that cartoon where they go into the um, kind of wood mill yeah. and what you see is them just kind of like walking and not paying attention as everything gets mm-hmm. chopped up around them. Like that's funny stuff, Yeah, but they were the cartoons that when they would come on syndication, you'd be like, ah, give me dad for your bugs. Yeah. Cause they're like the fun ones. Right. Yeah. I also was never crazy about speedy Gonzalez or, uh, you know, Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Pepe Le Pew. Uh, Problematic. Very problematic. Uh, so is Speedy Gonzalez. Um, so, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the the old timers like Fritz Freeling and Chuck Jones got occasional work doing TV specials or, mm. you know, a lot of those Bugs Bunny cartoons were repackaged into uh, feature length compilation films. Like, yeah, or reanimated. There's a lot mm. of like Bugs Bunny meets Speedy Gonzalez or stuff like that mm. that are like kind of pasted together into to make a new cartoon. Oh, yeah. Just atrocious. Just people that think that the kids are showing it to don't give a fuck and don't care and it's like come on guys but i think you know what this was all really building up towards was lunatics unleashed (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) uh which was a i'm gonna say late 90s early 2000s yeah i think it was around the same time as looney tunes back in action yeah and it's this reimagining of the looney tunes characters as like space warriors Mm. and it's the idea of like you have the brand and you don't want to do the thing that it's the most famous for. And you think that people are going to just enjoy seeing these characters that are not doing what people like them to do. I read an interview with Joe Dante talking about making his film Looney Tunes back in action. Mm-hmm. And he said it was a very frustrating experience because he was making this movie for executives who wouldn't cross the street to see it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a problem because, like I said at the beginning of the episode... A lot of people think that, like, cartoons are for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Even, like, the early Looney Tunes stuff, because they watched it as kids. So why should they give them any value in this day and age? But the reality of it is they're just as funny, if not funnier, than when I was a kid. I think there are certain things that, like, I'll start watching them. Like, maybe every six months or a year, I'll start watching Looney Tunes cartoons. And mm-hmm. then I'll think, why do I not only watch this? Yeah, It's got everything. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way about The Simpsons, too. Um, so I actually asked last week if kids watch Looney Tunes cartoons anymore. Because Saturday morning cartoons don't really exist in an age where you can watch whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So uh, people actually got back to me, specifically April Atmansky, who posted on her wall, and she knows a lot of people who have children. And some responses like, there's a new Bugs Bunny on Netflix. I think it's weirdly topical. Everyone has cell phones. Uh, somebody else wrote, I think we watched it once and they didn't have much interest. Nason used to watch Baby Looney Tunes, though. So I'm guessing that's Tiny Tunes. Oh, man, I don't know. Other people went, yes, they loved it. Uh, we streamed it with the Cody box. Somebody else wrote, rarely. They haven't shown much interest in it. I asked the girls if they liked it. And uh, one of my kids said, yes. And my other kid said, what's that? Huh. Because the only way kids would watch it now is if parents are making them watch it. I feel like they're the sorts of cartoons the kids could still like if they, yes. were, if they were on. I mean, know. they're colorful. They're simple. The they're characters funny, they're violent. are so iconic <laughs> that like you can latch on to it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully people will still keep showing it to their kids because it's good. I also don't see Warner Brothers really kind of exploiting the characters the way they could be. Like, I see Mickey Mouse t-shirts all the time, but I don't see Bugs Bunny merch a lot. I feel like it's probably because Warner Brothers kind of drove it into the ground. Mm. Because like Space Jam was like a, we're bringing it back. Back, and now they're cool again and so was looney tunes back in action i think looney tunes back in action was kind of like nails in the coffin if mm. you know what i mean yeah and it's difficult to kind of bring them on the level of someone like mickey mouse 
even though that they should be, because Mickey Mouse has no personality, but Bugs Bunny does. You know, it's funny. Uh, as a kid, I didn't see the Mickey Mouse cartoons very much. Me neither. Yeah. Never. He the, was just an icon and nothing more. Yeah. But it was something that you associated with Disney. Mm-hmm. And as they made some new Mickey Mouse cartoons recently that are 100% Warner Brothers cartoons. Like, you can see mm-hmm. them online. And they're done in the Flash style, which is like, ugh, yeah. it's so bad. Yeah, I feel like when I eventually saw the Mickey Mouse cartoons, I sort of admired them more than I liked them. Well, they're not very funny. Yeah. Because that's not really what interested and, Walt Disney. And they're quite slow. But the Warner Brothers cartoons are still like a, a straight punch in the gut so, of laughter. Anybody out there, go watch the Looney Tunes cartoons again because they're hilarious. And parents, show them to the, your kids. They'll appreciate it. All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com uh this week on our patreon we're talking about rick moranis uh will um digs up dirt on the sctv reunion that he went and saw last week Mm -hmm. and we talk about little shower horrors and strange brew which i had never seen before so listen to my reactions of that on the patreon patreon.com slash the important cinema club podcast do we have any letters Yes, we do. We have one, and it's from Sean Glynis. And he goes, Hey guys, after hearing about a listener who chose Woody Allen's Anything Else as his hill to die on on a past episode, it reminded me that Anything Else was the first Woody Allen film I saw in cinemas once I had developed into a full-fledged Woody Allen fan. Seeing his opening credits in the Windsor Light font, I had come to associate as comforting. It was a special moment for me. Even if I could recognize the movie was, as you guys say, a second-rate Annie Hall retread. My question is, have you guys had similar experiences of any director's work, whether you have come to love their films and then finally got to see one on the big screen? I'm trying to think, like, is there a director that I loved and when I finally got to see, like, in front of me with a crowd that it made that big a difference? Oh, I remember when I was, um, uh, you know, one of the kind of, when I was an early teenager, one of the kind of art house guys that I liked, who I really got into was... Ver- life is Beautiful? Yeah, Life is Beautiful. No, <laughs> no it was uh, Werner Herzog. Mm. And so I remember seeing uh, Invincible in a theater, which is not, <laughs> not one of his classics, but I was very excited. And then later, Grizzly Man. Mm. It was very exciting like to be in the, in the audience for that coming out. Actually, uh, speaking of Woody Allen, I remember going to see Curse of the Jade Scorpion in a theater and having a lot of anticipation, being like, I can't believe I'm seeing a, you know, I spent all summer watching his movies and now I'm going to see the new one. <laughs> Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Curse of the Jade Scorpion. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that was okay, he said yeah. as you left. Yeah, I mean, I felt I feel that way sometimes, you know, whenever uh, a new Jean-Luc Godard movie comes out where I kind of feel like, wow. This is going to be the last one. Well, here's here I am. You know, I wasn't in the audience for Breathless when that came out, but here I am at the latest dispatch from this, from the Grinch from Switzerland. I remember when I saw Army of Darkness on 35mm in a theater with a crowd, and that was like, whoa, seeing it on the big screen. Mm. And um, at the time, the cinematographer was in the audience. Oh, yeah, I was at that too. Yeah, and it was a print that was like really beat up. Up and like it didn't look too good and um victoria dobbs the manager of the theater was sitting beside me she got up 20 minutes in and went oh the camera moves are too crazy they're making me feel sick <laughs> and i was like whoa that's crazy do you remember the cinematographer bill pope in yeah the, in the q a he said something like you know this is really how we kind of dreamed of seeing it when we were making it you know barely audible sound <laughs> kind of muddy picture you know like you were watching it at a bad drive and bill pope was pretty dismissive of the movie as well where he's like whoa you guys really enjoyed that eh? yeah <laughs> 
those are my my favorite q a's this is maybe a different sort of experience but i remember when i was a, a teenager and i was like coming downtown to go to kung fu fridays mm-hmm. which uh, colin gettys used to program at the royal and it was these oftentimes very obscure kung fu movies on 35 millimeter prints and it was so kind of amazing to me that a i was watching them on a print and b in a theater with other people i remember when i first moved to toronto and i started going to theaters kind of on my own because when i lived in ottawa while they did have kind of rep theaters they would mostly play like art house stuff they wouldn't have that many kind of like retro screenings but like 10 years ago when i was looking at the listings i was like oh well i'll go see 2001 on this day i guess like mm-hmm. if i have time that's playing at the Bloor cinema the good the bad and the ugly and there's like mm-hmm. a million things happening and that there was something kind of magical was about that idea which doesn't exist anymore. Oh, God, that just reminds me about how, you know, 10 years ago, all the rap theaters in this city were playing stuff on film. Yeah, I mean, uh, we say this all the time, uh, though. Like, this should be like a check mark that like, I know. if you count how many times we said it, you get like a free episode or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I, yeah, the thing is, I look back and I think, you know, there were so many more I should have gone to. Yeah, but you didn't realize. You always assume those things are going to last forever. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, well, I'm not going to see this movie now. So I'll just see it later. Not realizing like, it's not going to come back. Like the Royal Cinema does stuff like that. That if you're like, well, I don't want to see it. You're like, you're never going to see it again. Because why would anybody do that again? Man, I wonder what some of the things in my life right now I'm taking for granted are. Right here, this, man. This, this. Yeah, this one. Eventually we'll be, you know, old men with kids and grandkids. And just we... listening to these old episodes. Remember when we used to watch movies all week and then get together and talk about it? Oh, it's too bad we had that terrible falling out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I shot Will Sloan in the arm, which then had to be amputated. I've made this whole history in my mind already. All right. So uh, thanks very much for sending the letter. So next week, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about the work of Mikhailitazov, who's most famous for making The Cranes Are Flying and I Am Cuba. But I don't know if me and Will would have enough to talk about when it comes to him. While those two films are iconic, uh, Cranes Are Flying was put out by the Criterion Collection. I Am Cuba was remastered and released by like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. I looked for books about him and I couldn't find any of them. I'm sure they exist, but they're not available to me. So I thought that maybe I wanted to approach his big films stylistically. And that when I think of him, what he's most famous for are his long takes. Like I Am Cuba has jaw-droppingly long camera takes that go on for like what seems like 30 minutes up, down, across. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, when he made Boogie Nights, was incredibly inspired by uh, I Am Cuba and the way that like the camera would go down an elevator and then would go into a pool and stuff like that. And then it got me thinking that stylistically the long take is the thing that like cinephiles kind of obsess over the most when they get into movies. Yeah, young cinephiles particularly, yeah. Because that's something that like it's quantifiable. The idea of like, whoa, they did this all in one go, even though like people get up on stage and they do four hour performances and it's all in (laughs) one go. (laughs) But in cinema, it just means something different. So not only will we be talking about I Am Cuba and The Cranes Are Flying, we're also going to be talking about like long takes in cinema, whether it be like Goodfellas or even something like Children of Men, where like that's a long take movie. That's all really people talk about. And what this style means to like the thematic concerns of those movies, Mm. because something like I Am Cuba, what's interesting about it was that it was supposed to be a piece of propaganda. And that when the propaganda minister saw it, they said, we cannot release this because those long takes you use give it a different feel than it would have if you just made a straight movie. Hmm. So, like, what does that mean? And that's what we're going to be digging uh, into in that episode. So, until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. And as per usual, you can follow me at DeClueJ on Twitter. 
I'm at uh, Will Sloan ESQ. And Justin DeClue on Letterboxd, uh, and that's D-E-C-L-O-U-X. And make sure to go and rate and review us on iTunes. Said it last week, nobody did. That's all, folks. <laughs> Actually, that's not all, folks. Uh, <laughs> that's like a record scratch just for you uh, teenagers out there. Uh, before we recorded this episode, Justin and I watched a couple of cartoons, and one of them was uh, Hollywood Steps Out, which is uh, set at a Hollywood nightclub, and it's simply like a series of caricatures of... Horrifying caricatures. They look like Dick Tracy villains. Caricatures of then-popular Hollywood stars. So, so like uh, Clark Gable, um, uh, the Three Stooges, the Marx Brothers, Jimmy Stewart, yeah, Henry and a Fonda. parade of faces that we did not recognize. <laughs> yeah, quite quite a few we didn't recognize. It's interesting, kind of which which stars are the ones who really endure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Humphrey Bogart's in it, or like what kind of cultural moments are referenced in it? Something Bing Crosby and a horse, like yeah. Okay, so this is something that came up in the old gray hair as well, where Elmer Fudd looks at a newspaper in the year two thousand. It said. Bing Crosby's horse still hasn't come in. And then in this cartoon, uh, Hollywood steps out, uh, like a, a horse keeps coming on stage while Bing Crosby's talking. You know, write in and tell us, what was this thing with Bing Crosby <laughs> I mean, we could look online, but as you said, I'd rather not, because then it will be a mystery I will have to solve throughout my life. Yeah, it's like, and I feel that way about a lot of Looney Tunes cartoons, mm-hmm. because so many of them are very topical. Uh, like, there's a line that they keep saying in them, where somebody will say, I'm only three and a half years old. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a radio character who would say that. (laughs) But, like, it has gone beyond that. Mm -hmm. And because the Looney Tunes are more popular than that radio show, that has become, like, the text, right? Not the parody. And actually... A perfect example of that is Foghorn Leghorn was based on a character from the Fred Allen show called Senator Claghorn. Mm. Now that's totally lost to modern audiences. Oh, I'm glad you actually brought uh, Foghorn Leghorn up because we forgot to mention the other director that was like under all of the ones we actually mentioned, which was um, Robert uh, McKimson. Yes. Who was also famous for kind of designing all the the characters. Like he kind of streamlined a lot of them into the popular um, shape that they would take. Yeah, I think he's generally considered the least genius mm-hmm. of the major animators. Even though he did work on all of them, but like his cartoons would be like Bugs Bunny meets that gorilla. Remember a Gruesome Gorilla? Yeah, Or Gorilla yeah. Gruesome? Yeah. Who only appeared in that. Oh, actually, he did three of them, but nobody remembers them. He, Robert McKimson did one cartoon that I think is great, and it's uh, A Star is Bored, which is Bugs Bunny telling the story of his life. Oh, you know, yes, I remember, because he's uh, by the pool at the beginning, <laughs> yeah. where the camera kind of like, and we see now in Hollywood Hills, and it like zooms in on him. And there's that whole like origin story where he meets Elmer Fudd and... <laughs> And they're they're on stage, and they say he says "What's up, Doc?" for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like it's kind of like a parody of like the Jolson story or one yeah, of those corny right. biopics of the time. Or for kids today, the like I didn't do it <laughs> kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean, like Foghorn Leghorn again. He was one of those characters that I'm like, ah, Foghorn Leghorn cartoon. Yeah, like, I, I never liked Foghorn Leghorn. No. I'll say, I'll say. My dad would imitate him all the time, though, because it's something that's so like recognizable and easy to do. Well, your dad's really imitating a Senator Claghorn, which I'm sure was he knew that, and that's <laughs> what he was. No, he didn't at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like this idea of like topicalness is something that. I think about every now and then when I watch like a movie now, like we, we, we mentioned it when we did like a date movie and stuff like that. Mm. We're like, this will not like, who are the, like, what are these jokes and who are these people? But like, does it matter? Cause like the Muppet movie is filled with like stars of the screen at the time, like the original 70s yeah. Muppet movie. And you look at them and you go, I see Orson Welles and 
miscellaneous as a kid. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, I guess it doesn't matter, right? Well, I mean, I guess there has to be just something else going on mm. aside from, you know, aside from the topical reference. So you don't think Deadpool 2 will last with all its references to what's going on right now? I haven't seen it. I yeah. wouldn't know. It might be wonderful. 